you, Tom. Well, good morning. Hope you all have your flashlights handy. Might need it a little later. I'd like to open in prayer. Lord, thanks that we get to be here and worship you. Lord, I ask that you would speak to each heart, each person. You know our stories. We ask that you would reveal your heart and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Bryce Gray. I serve as one of the elders here. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a young man whose uh, family have attended Grace for most of his adolescence. He also uh, had the privilege of attending some religiously oriented schools throughout much of his education. And as he sat in my office, he calmly said, well, I'm an atheist. With a measured calmness, he expressed that he believes religious faith is in the imagination of those who believe. It helps his mom and many others find peace. But in reality, he hasn't seen much evidence for God really existing. To him, a father up above looking down in love is just pie in the sky to make you feel better. Well, for many of us, this might be one of our greatest nightmares. We pray for children. They're born. We dedicate them. We bring them to church. We pray for them, and they grow up, and they say, I haven't seen a shred of evidence of God being real in your life. As the weight of that conversation has been sinking in over the last few weeks, I found myself saying, God, how do we make your reality your presence real to people around us. As I sat there talking with this talented and gifted young man, I thought, God, is there really no evidence of your reality being born out in my life for him to see? Last summer, my wife read a book called When Heaven Invades Earth, and she didn't just read it, she read it over and over again. Every night she'd read a chapter, and as the summer Wait on, I kind of started mocking her a little bit, like, you know, you little remedial? Don't you, like, think going through it once is enough? Then, 10 months ago, we had a staff retreat with the elders and uh, staff and spouses, and there's a young woman who's an intern with Carl this past year who, eight years prior, had had a surgery, and her right side of her body wasn't working. Her arm, she couldn't really move or feel, and after Melissa prayed with her, it just started working. It was unbelievable to watch. So I thought, maybe I should read that book after all. So I did. There's a chapter in the book that really caught my attention. It says, our debt to the world, an encounter with God. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could live our lives in such a way that the presence of God exuded from us, that we could truly call others into this adventure of a faithful journey where God shows up and he's real? One of the statements in the chapter said this, I owe the world a spirit-filled life because I owe them an encounter with God. So this morning, as we look at one of my favorite Bible characters, my prayer is that you will experience and encounter God in the story this morning. It's a little too long for me to read the whole thing. It covers four chapters in Second Chronicles. If you want to read along, you can pull out your pew Bible. It's page 315 in 70 verses. So 
I wrestled with trying to get all the slides and everything perfect, and I realized it was too much information. So you're going to get the Cliff Notes version, and we'll highlight a few key parts of it. But here's the gist of what I feel like the Lord wants me to communicate today. God is looking to show himself strong in the lives of his people. God is calling us to trust him, to not rely on our own instincts or our own power, but to rely on God. And if we could start to do this, it would change our lives. There's a passage from Proverbs that sums it up. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So as we start, I'd like to ask you, do you believe in a father up above who's looking down in love? As we start this morning, I'd like you to think for a moment about your forefathers, your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. You know, we all have a story of how we ended up in America, don't we? Well, imagine if you happen to have as your great-grandfather the richest man in the world. That's what our character we're going to look at today had for his legacy. In fact, it says he had 12,000 horses. He had 4,000 chariots. In his day, silver was as common as gravel. Every item that they ate off of, plate, spoon, goblet, was gold, gold covered. Such was the heritage of King Asa, who we'll look at today. He has an interesting story, though, because his father, although early on Solomon loved God and he was given great blessings, God actually appeared to him two times. As his life moved on, he veered from God. God had commanded not to have multiple wives, not to marry people from a foreign country that worshipped other gods, and he had 700 wives, and As his life went on, he began to accommodate their religious interests. And so the temple, which he had spent 13 years building, or seven, I guess it was, building, was still there. They still had all the religious activity, but he also had shrines and and poles and high places and all kinds of other syncretistic religions going on. It really bummed out God. It says in 1 Kings, he was angry at Solomon. And he said, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to separate most of the kingdom from you. Well, Asa's grandpa takes over. Um, it's only 20 years from the time that Solomon dies to Asa be, till Asa becomes king. But grandpa, his first decision he made, it resulted in a secession of 80% of the kingdom. They abandoned him, they revolted, and they went up and said, we're not going to follow you. Those people created their own religious system. They fired all the priests, all the Levites. They said, if you want to worship the old way Moses taught, Move. He created some golden calves for them to follow and worship. But Asa's grandpa, he didn't really do anything differently than what Solomon did. In fact, God got so upset that after five years, just five years of running the family business, if you will, they were bankrupt. God sent in Egypt. Egypt took them out. All the gold, all the silver, everything in the temple, the wealth taken, the horses, the chariots, decimated We don't really get to know an awful lot about his dad. His dad was only king for three years. In fact, it says in 1 Kings merely, he walked in all the ways of his dad. He didn't follow the Lord like great-great-grandfather David had. But there's one scene in Chronicles that I think is just awesome. The guys that revolted to the north were led by a guy named Jeroboam. He had 800,000 soldiers. Asa's dad had 400,000, and it says that they marched down to have a battle in Asa's dad walked out. Remember, this is a guy who isn't following God. He has a speech of his lifetime, and he basically says this, who do you think you are 
attacking me. Don't you know who my daddy is? I'm from the royal line of David. We have the temple that we have sacrifices going on day and night. You've abandoned God. You have kicked out the priests. You've got golden calves that you're doing. How dare you come against us? Erstwhile, while he's given this great speech, the king has sent half his troops around coming up from the south, and he's flanked. And he realizes, I'm, I'm, in, I'm dead. We're surrounded. And he cries out to God and says, God, we trust in you. Help us. And this is what happens in chapter 13, verse 4. When the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah, Asa's dad, and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them with great force, so that there fell slain a half million soldiers. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. So what do we know about Asa and his background before he becomes king? He must have had some great stories as a kid. You know, I know, I remember spending time with my grandfather and how awesome it was to hear about what life was like for him. He was born in 1910. He lived through the Depression. I remember him telling me stories of how men would knock on his door and say, I'll do anything for food. He said there was a guy that dug a humongous hole and took these heavy boulders and buried it just for a potato and some soup. Mind-boggling what that was like. But for Asa, the great stories of his great-grandfather were dashed when five years after his dad took over, they were made paupers. Everything ransacked. And yet something happens in this battle where even though his father wasn't really that godly, in his crisis he called out to God and God showed up. So here's the question. What does it mean believing that your father up above is looking down in love to rely on him and not yourselves? The story picks up in chapter 14 with Asa in his early days of being a king and it says this. Abijah, his dad, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had peace for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He took away the foreign altars, the high places. He broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places, the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those days, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. And it's said that during that decade, the military strength grew from 400,000 to 580,000. What a thing to be said about your first decade of following God as king. He did what was right. He took away. He broke down. He encouraged people to seek God. And he defined for them the reason for their blessing. He said it's because we're putting God first that he's blessing us. After a decade, he has what I call his midterm examination. A kingdom 
comes against them, the Ethiopians. They come with an army of a million people. And it's as though he remembers clearly what happened when his dad was king. And he says, God, we need your help. We're outnumbered. We cannot defend ourselves against this mighty army. And God gives them victory. In fact, it says that as they were defeating the enemy that had come to attack and chasing them, the fear of God fell on all the cities around them as they chased them. And it was just like they just kept winning and winning more and more bounty and plunder. They got incredible wealth. What looked like a crisis and they might have been doomed became a blessing with which God gave them resources for the future. And it gave the people a clear understanding that God was real and God was alive. So at this point, he gets a visit from a prophet. Now, for those of you who may not know all the Old Testament history, it's not always a good thing when God sends a prophet to talk to you. Most of the time, the prophet's coming to tell you you're doing something wrong, and most of the time, the guy that hears the message isn't too excited to hear it. It's not a really good profession. In this case, it was a good, a good experience for both. It says the Spirit of God came upon this guy, Azariah, and he goes to the king, and he basically says, listen to me. You guys are doing an awesome job. If you keep seeking God, God will keep showing up. Remember what it used to be like in your, in your country. There was a long period where God was silent. God wasn't showing up. But keep putting him first. And then he says specifically, take courage. Don't let your knees become weak. God will reward your work. And it's almost like this fresh wind of energy comes into him. And he just goes on a, a complete rampage for God. They go into all the cities that he's conquered. And he begins to just say, get rid of idols. God is going to be the one that's honored and only God. It says that by the 15th year, great numbers of people from the northern revolters in Israel began migrating down to live with them because they saw that God was at work in their midst. He calls everyone together, and they have this massive celebration where they're all kind of shouting and praising and saying, we commit to follow God with all of our hearts. It says that the people sought God with their full desire, and God was found by them. At one point, his mother makes a private idol, and he deposes her. He even has to cut off his family because of their lack of following God. There's one verse that says, however, that the high places were not removed in all of Israel. Amazing amount of work, amazing amount of trying to bring God's presence and yet a little bit of a compromise, it would appear. So just to recap, his midterm was a chance to see God show up. Right after trusting God, he sends a prophet to say, away, keep going, keep leading. He obeys. Everyone under his influence is committed to following God. There's joy. And God gives them peace for another 20 years. Then comes his final exam. It says that in the 36th year of his reign, a new king has come on the throne in Israel up north, and he must not have read his history book where last time they attacked, a half million got killed by God. But he attacks them. He causes a trade route to get blocked off. They have a siege on a big city and Asa sits back and says, hmm, how do I solve this problem? Does an inventory of how much money is in the temple and how much money he's got saved up and he sends emissaries with a whole pile of money 
up to Syria, the king of Syria up in the north, and he says, hey, how'd you like to be my friend? Here's a great gift. All I need you to do is go attack from the north this country that's bothering me. And the king of Syria says, sounds good, thanks for the gold. Attacks, and sure enough, it works. The king that was laying siege on him down in the south realizes he has to go back, defend himself, and stops attacking Asa. He calls his people to go and take away all the stones and the timber for the siege. And it would appear that all's well. Except that he gets another visit from a prophet. We read this in chapter 16, verse 7. At that time, Hananiah the seer came to King Asa and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria, he has escaped from your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And here's my favorite verse in the Old Testament. For the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You've acted like a fool. From now on, you will have wars. You get the heart of what's going on here? God's saying, don't you get it? You have crises that come up in your life as an opportunity to cry out to me, for me to show up and to show you that I'm real. So I was trying to kind of figure out what the best way to describe what I'm picturing in my mind. A scene from a movie that came out this spring came to mind. It's called The Million Dollar Arm. A scout in baseball gets the idea to go to India and find some cricketer who has the juice of Justin Verlander in. He gets some financial guy to back him and he gets a team of people to go with their speed guns and he finds a scout to come. And the scout in the movie is kind of an old guy and he kind of looks like he's hungover half the time and disinterested, like what a waste of time this is going and watching all these people learn how to throw a baseball. There's a point where the guy that's in charge, who's kind of the, you know, the young guy trying to make this work, he's getting kind of frustrated because basically the guy just kind of sleeps like this while everyone's doing their tryouts. He goes, come on, you've got to pay attention. You've got to help me find this person. And he goes, I don't need to watch. He goes, I'll know when I hear it. Scenes go on, and it's actually a true story, and they ultimately find a kid and makes a pitch into the catcher, and it goes, pop. He opens his eyes, 92 miles an hour. His eye or his ears had been attuned to know what the sound of the juice in the arm looked like. And that's what I think God's, God, he's got an antenna. He's attuned to what it's like to have a heart that's trusting him. And he's saying, I'm looking. I'm out there looking for the guy with the juice to show myself strong. You may have wondered why you got this lovely keychain when you walked in, the flashlight. If you look up at the picture, um, this is, to me, the, the word that God has given me with this passage. You know, with Noah, after the flood, he gave us a rainbow. And he said, every time you see a rainbow... You need to be reminded that never again will I destroy humans with a flood. That's my sign to you, Noah. Well, often, especially in the summer, it gets to be late in the afternoon and the clouds are kind of partially covering and you'll see these rays of sunshine come through. 
And to me, that's God's flashlight. That's a reminder. I'm looking. I'm looking for somebody whose heart is completely mine. Now, if you're like me, you read the Bible stories and you kind of go, well, that was great, you know. Maybe every now and again someone special comes along like David or Noah, Job, and maybe they throw 95 miles an hour and it goes pop and God wakes up and goes, oh, there's someone. But what about most of us? Does God really care with 6 billion people in the world about what we do every day? I was thinking, where... Where in the Bible do we see evidence of God taking note of people? Jesus, when he was here, you know, a couple different times, God parts the heavens and speaks, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with Jesus. That makes sense, right? He's perfect. Well, one day Jesus was sitting and watching people. As always, he was with his disciples and all of a sudden he says, did you see that? And they go, see what? That. No. He goes, you didn't see that? See, he's watching people going into the temple to worship. There was a lady, a widow, unassuming, not much to offer the world. She dropped in a couple little pennies. And Jesus said, did you see that? She out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. That's what I noticed. That's worth more to me than all the wealth. All those rich people that gave money didn't cost them a thing, comparatively speaking. To me, that's proof that God is saying each one of us has the opportunity to make God smile if we trust him in the situations that we're in. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. How do you trust God versus relying on yourself? You know, just this week as I was trying to pull all my thoughts together, I found myself kind of getting all the slides and getting all anxious and, and just trying to make sure I don't totally screw it up, you know. And a friend of mine said, maybe you should just trust God. Maybe you should get up there without any notes and see what happens. You know, our church, we're at a time where we need to trust God. God, who's going to lead us? What direction do you want us going? We're saying, God, show up. We need you. Lots of things that we can choose to trust in besides God, isn't there? Some of us, it's the government. For some of us, it's our military. Hey, our military is strong. They'll protect us. We don't really need God, do we? Maybe it's our money, our skills, our network of friends, our family. Maybe it's the church that you're looking to to really take care of you. But it needs to be Jesus. Just in the last couple weeks, I've interacted with a woman getting divorced. Husband's hiding assets, she believes, and feels totally abandoned and at her wit's end. Is she going to turn to alcohol? Is she going to just become embittered and angry and curse him and poison the kids? Or is she going to say, Jesus, I trust you. I'm powerless without you showing up. 
interact with another single mom. Been out of work for a while. Finally got offered the job she's been praying for. Pending backgrounds getting cleared, and it just kept not getting released. And got the word this week, sorry, we've, I can't hire you. I don't know why. They told me I had to pass. Crushed. Does she just give up? Do you commit suicide? Do you just kind of say, screw you, God, you're not there? Or is maybe her story like the widow's might, that just this week, if she can say, God, help, mercy, help me, I need to fund my family, that might be making God so happy. While we're all worshiping and praising God, those little acts are the ones that I think really open the way for God to find joy and to show up. Some of us have nagging health issues. Some of us are overwhelmed in parenting. Some of you may be in a relationship and you know that God's calling you to be pure and you're, and you're trying to decide, well, what if, what if we stop sleeping together and I get left behind? And for you, that's your place of faith, of trust. Every time you and I choose to trust God in the midst of our crises and our worries, it's like the pop of a 95-mile-an-hour fastball in the mid. Well, we're almost done. Let's see how Asa responds to the prophet. It says, Then Asa was angry. He put the prophet in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, his feet became diseased and it became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. Isn't that just tragic? A guy whose grandpa and dad and even his great-grandpa, the richest guy in the world, just blew it. As a young guy, he must have seen the inconsistency. And when he's given a chance to be king, he says, it's going to be different. We're going to put God first. We're going to get rid of the evil in our life. We're going to honor him. As we trust and follow him, he will bless us with peace. He's given the midterm exam, and he passes it with flying colors, and great wealth comes in. God sends a prophet to say, keep at it. Add away. Use the influence I've given you for my purposes. But somehow, in the course of a couple decades, he becomes reliant upon himself. He doesn't seem to think twice about taking God's money and using it to buy off a pagan army to do the dirty work for him. And then when sickness comes, it's like he's forgotten about a God that can heal and can show up. His heart becomes hardened. And the very gift that God gives him to wake him up and get out of his mess, he puts him in jail. Kind of different from the way it went with David. You know, David, he wasn't perfect, had an affair. She gets pregnant. He kills her husband. God sends a prophet to him, says, you're the man. But David repents, and he's broken, and he says, God, have mercy. And instead of David, he was a man after my own heart. Yeah, he messed up in this area pretty big. But he 
yearned for that intimacy and that relationship, and he was restored. Well, now you know about my favorite Bible character, Asa. He saw God as a young, younger man show up in battle, a half million people killed. He put God first. He took away. He broke down. He commanded those around him to seek God. But at some point, he started relying on himself. Here's what I believe. I believe that God wants to start moving in our church like he's never done before. He wants us to learn to pray, to trust him. He wants his kingdom to come. He wants more people to be healed. He wants more stories so that when I talk with friends like I did who say I see no evidence of God, they have to say something different. They have to say I see evidence of God, but I don't want to follow him. The key is going to be whether you and I are willing to stop relying on ourselves. And if when God gives us a crisis, we're willing to say, help God. Show up. You see, God's looking for people whose heart is available for him to show up. We're going to sing a song in a, in a few minutes, and the question I want to leave you to think about is this. What is God saying to you today? For some of you, I think the word is, don't give up. Don't turn to bitterness. Don't stop praying. Reach out. Invite God to show up. And for some of us, if we're honest, we might be a little bit like Ace at the end. There's a cruelness about us. There's, a, there's an edginess. There's a lack of responsiveness to God's spirit that needs to be broken. When we're done with the song, I'm just going to invite anyone that wants to to come and get some prayer. You know, there's a passage in the book of James that says, if anyone is sick, he should call the elders of the church together and they should lay hands on him and anoint him with oil and they will be healed. And I got to tell you, there aren't a lot of phone calls for elders to pray. And I think it's time that we start stepping out in faith and asking God to show up and to heal. Let's pray. Lord, what are you saying to us today? I pray that we would hear and that we would respond. In Jesus' name, amen.